Hello and welcome to the podcast for the July 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by TLO's editor, Dr. David Collingridge. David, welcome. And the first thing to note about the July issue is that, of course, this looks like a themed issue and lung cancer in particular. Yes, that's right. The July issue is the first of two themed issues this year. This month we're presenting a collection of papers reflecting on some of the key considerations surrounding lung cancer. Now, as we all know, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in men and women, and effective treatment is extremely challenging. So we decided an issue dedicated to this disease would be of of considerable value. So we're also distributing this issue at the International Lung Cancer Conference in Liverpool, which runs over four days, starting on July 9th. David, let's discuss a trial, and this is looking at radiofrequency ablation for lung cancer, and this is a technique that has been used in other areas of oncology. Can you just start off by describing what this technique is and where it's been used before? Radiofrequency ablation is a minimally invasive technique. It's been used with reasonable success for the treatment of unresectable liver metastases and liver malignancies. But experimental studies have shown the technique might be useful for eradication of pulmonary tumours as well, which led to the current trial. And methodologically, David, this is this is a single arm trial, so I'm assuming it's is it kind of like a phase two and is it looking at sort of feasibility and, and safety, no comparison with conventional uh, treatments at this stage? That's right. This, this particular trial by an Italian group is a prospective single-arm, multi-centred study involving patients considered ineligible for surgery, radiotherapy or chemotherapy. Now, all the patients had biopsy-proven non-small cell lung cancer or lung metastases predominantly from colorectal cancer. The ablation electrodes were introduced into these tumours under CT guidance and used to heat the tumours to 90 degrees Celsius for varying lengths of time depending on the size of the lesion. Patients were then followed up every three months for a period of two years. David, how clear would you say the results are from this trial? Because am I right in saying that one of the issues here is about the appropriate selection of patients for this type of technique? Yes, the results seem to suggest that radiofrequency ablation could be a viable treatment option. Now, overall survival was 70% at one year, 48% at two years for patients with non-small cell lung cancer, and 89% at one year and 66% at two years for patients with colorectal metastases. But as you say, there are limitations. The patient population was heterogeneous. The subgroups of patients with similar characteristics are quite small, which undermines the power of the study a little bit. And without five-year survival data or a comparative control group, there are still a few unanswered questions. However, this is the first trial to test this approach, and the results are a clear indication that a larger randomised trial is clearly warranted. And we look forward to hearing more about that when those larger trials come out. By contrast, David, you also publish an epidemiological study. This is coming from Canada. And this is investigating whether a form of obesity among cancer patients is associated with worse outcome or even in terms of treatment or survival. What is this specific form of obesity, David? And, and what were the investigators setting out to look at here? You're absolutely right. This is a very different study to the previous one. It's a population-based study looking at the implications of sarcopenic obesity in patients with respiratory and gastrointestinal tumours. Now, there is some debate as to whether the definitions of obesity based on body mass index are relevant in the cancer setting because they don't take into account the composition of body mass, i.e. the proportion of fat to muscle. Now, the amount of muscle is thought to be important because some chemotherapy drugs preferentially accumulate in this type of tissue. So sarcopenic obesity is defined as obesity with depleted muscle mass. And as clearly indicated from that definition, this is 
a pretty bad situation because it comprises two separate health risks, excessive weight and depleted lean mass. This study was looking at data for over 2,000 cancer patients. What proportion had this form of obesity sarcopenia? How did they actually run the study? Well, of the 2,115 patients identified from a database at the Alberta Cancer Board, 325 or 15% were classified as obese based on a BMI greater than 30. CT records were available for 250 of these patients and from these images 38 were classified as having sarcopenia. Okay, so that's the sarcopenia. How would you summarise the main results in terms of a worse prognosis, which was kind of the, the hypothesis that the investigators were testing, wasn't it? The results clearly show that sarcopenic obesity is associated with a worse functional status and was an independent predictor of poor survival. Although the authors do point out, very honestly, some weaknesses with their study. How do you assess those in the context of, of the study findings? The authors of this study only investigated sarcopenia in obese patients with cancer, but sarcopenia can occur in any patient of any weight. And so additional research is needed to see whether the negative effects of depleted muscle influence treatment response in all patients with cancer. Additionally, the authors highlight the various disputes surrounding the use of BMI to define obesity and the cutoffs used, and whether percent body fat would be a better alternative measure. Yes, which is a broader debate that's going on in the cardiology world and public health world everywhere. Absolutely, a much broader debate. But are there any implications from this study for people with cancer? I mean, can we draw a conclusion or not, do you think? I think we can start to draw some conclusions. The main implication of this study is the finding that body mass composition of some patients negatively affects the efficacy of their treatment. In this particular study, the variance in total body fat-free mass from one patient to the next was estimated to account for up to three times the effective volume of distribution of chemotherapy. This is quite a remarkable statistic and clearly has implications for treatment planning. I'm sure we're going to hear more about that. It's a very interesting topic. And finally, David, you've got a special report out in this month's issue. This is about smoke-free policies based on a recent meeting held at the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC. What was this meeting all about and what's coming out of it? We are very fortunate this month to be able to report the outcomes from this particular meeting at IARC in Lyon um, on the effectiveness of health policies introduced around the world to protect people against the harmful effects of secondhand smoke. These data will not be published in full until next year in an IARC handbook timed to coincide with the World Conference on Tobacco or Health that's going to be held in Mumbai. So our feature is a little bit of an exclusive this month. These policies, as you'll no doubt recall, were an integral part of the WHO Framework Convention for Tobacco Control and the results from this meeting are the first to pull together all of the evidence to get a robust assessment of their effect. Yeah, and in the report, the special report, David, there's quite a lot of focus, isn't there, about smoke-free policies in the work setting. So what's, what's the evidence now saying about that, where, where policies, smoke-free policies have been introduced? Well, the evidence to date shows smoke-free policies are very effective in decreasing second-hand smoke exposure, both in the workplace, as you say, but also at home. These policies can decrease the consumption of cigarettes in current smokers and, importantly, among younger people. They also decrease respiratory symptoms in workers and can decrease the morbidity from heart disease. Now, Studies also now prove that smoke-free policies do not affect the business activities of bars and restaurants, which, of course, was one of the major obstacles against wide-scale implementation of various bans against smoking in public places. A question still unanswered, however, is whether these measures will affect the prevalence of lung cancer? This is a crucial question, and intuitively one would expect a decrease in lung cancer incidence, but because of the long lag time between exposure and cancer development, 
we'll have to wait a few more years until we have definitive answers on that. A question in my mind, as a non-expert here, is I'm aware, as we're, a lot of us are aware, of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, the FCT, WHO, WHO FCTC. How do the findings from this expert panel and the report that's being published and next year the, the, the fuller report by IARC, how does that relate to this convention? The conclusions from, from this report give a very clear mandate for governments who have yet to fully implement the Framework Convention on, on Tobacco Control. This convention is clearly effective and in the fullness of time I have absolutely no doubt that it will contribute considerably to the reduction in the health risks associated with tobacco. Many thanks, David. And some highlights there from the July issue of The Lancet Oncology, a special themed issue on lung cancer. And just remind us, David, a special themed issue coming up next month on? On global health. On global health. Tune in and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.